0: Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently holding for further traffic clearance.
1: This is your Walt Disney World picture phone operator. How may I be of assistance?
2: You know, somehow Disney Fantasy seems
1: a little more alive at night. In fact, it was Walt's favorite time at the park.
0: Your attention, please. Last call for the Walt Disney Railroad. Now departing for a grand circle tour around the Magic Kingdom. Lights. Camera. Action. W, w-, w- Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 558, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best vacation experience when you go to the Disney parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, my live video broadcast on Facebook every Wednesday night, books, audio tours, special events, blog, and more. Whether you're a first-time visitor or have been to the parks hundreds of times, if you're planning a vacation or love the details, secrets, stories, and history, there is something on the show and the site for you because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And if you're a new listener, welcome. And I invite you to go back and check check out some or all of the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes And visit www.radio.com. Did you know that in addition to Disneyland and Walt Disney World, there were plans, and lots of them, to build additional parks in the United States? From St. Louis to Mineral King, from the East Coast to the shores of California, there were a number of ideas that were very close to being built. And this week, we'll look at some of the many unbuilt and lost Disney Parks concepts including a few you may never have heard of or realized just how close they were to becoming a reality. We'll look at where they were going and why, the reasons why they never came to be, and where some of those ideas eventually ended up. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about our upcoming ww radio events our next meet of the month in walt disney world your voicemails and more so sit back relax and enjoy this week's episode of the ww radio show Disney, it's always been said that no great idea ever dies. Or does it? While countless concepts have most likely been shelved literally and figuratively over the years at Walt Disney Imagineering, some have been blue sky concepts, while others have probably been much closer towards making the dreams and designs a reality. And some may have eventually been dusted off Modified, tweaked, and implemented elsewhere, but maybe weren't always exactly what they had in mind. And while some of these concepts have been attractions, resorts, shows, and probably even full theme park additions or expansions at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, there have been some other ideas that have been much bigger, much bolder, unique, and exciting and it would have existed far outside the berm of either or both parks. In fact, they would have been another Disney park, mostly in North America. So this week, we're going to peek into the archives of Imagineering, figuratively, of course, and explore some of the lost Disney parks concepts that were never built. And joining me is a fellow Disney fan. And by fan, I mean history nerd, friend, longtime member of the WW Radio team and family. She is Kendall Foreman, who I think this is your first time ever on the show. Yeah? It is. We yeah, have make, known each make other. Box been,
2: appearances, but that's
0: it. <laughs> we have been we've known each other and been friends for a year and, and for a very, very long time. Uh, you were the brains and the brawn behind the WDW radio blog and getting your content and the content of so many great writers uh, up on the blog. So for that I appreciate it. As well as this idea, this is something that I think I have touched on in very much sort of peripheral kind of ways we would mention some of these places in passing but this was sort of your ideas in terms of focusing specifically on these much grander site-based new parks not even really expansions uh, around the country
2: yeah this was something that I've Ever since I started blogging, ever since I got my first iPod touch, I would keep notes in there of things that I wanted to write a blog post about. And I think this has been in there for years and I keep looking at it and I'm like, I got to write that. I got to write that. And I just could never come up with the right way to convey it in a blog post. I just felt like it was something that would be better talked about with someone else to reflex with. And so it just sat there until finally I decided when I was done being editor, it was time to cash in my chips and get to be on the show.
0: (laughs) Well, and like I said, I dig this. And over the years, you and others have published a a ton of blogs on the site from a series called The World That Never Was, where we talked about – Genesis Gardens at Animal Kingdom, Equatorial Africa, the Animal Kingdom Carousel, Thunder Mesa, Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers, Soviet Russia in the World Showcase, and I've also done on the show a number of different series. So back on show number 91, I did The Lost Resorts of the Magic Kingdom, the Asian, Persian, and Venetian The World Showcase That Never Was, Wayback Machine on 105. The Muppets in Walt Disney World. Not just what is and was, but what almost was on show 251. We took the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to the Disney decade and the Michael Eisner era back on show 426. And many of his ideas that came to be and some that didn't. And most recently, I think the latest Walt Disney World That Never Was series was Beastly Kingdom on 481. And I know somewhere in there we also talked about Roger Rabbit and Hollywood Land and Hollywood Studios. But this week I really want to focus on some of the big projects. And I think some of these will be ones that you may have heard of and maybe some that you haven't. And we're going to talk about why they were going to get built and why they didn't. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you which one you would have liked to have experienced most. So, Kendall, this is your idea. I Chivalry is not dead. I still believe in ladies first. I, I wanted to ask you if you had one that you wanted to go to first, but I almost think starting chronologically earliest on with one of the early expansions to Walt Disney's Mineral King might be a good place to start because I think that was probably the one that was not only never built, but was one that we ha- people have heard of a lot, but was also earliest on in terms of timing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have my favorite amongst our list of what we're going to talk about, but I agree because all of these kind of just f- flow into each other, especially when we get closer to the Eisner area. It's like you almost can't talk about one without talking about another.
0: So, so for those people who are or maybe not familiar with what Mineral King is, what was the idea and where was it and why did Walt want to create something that was going to be something very, very different than the huge success that he had with Disneyland?
2: Well, you can find like a little short interview clip online where Walt's just briefly talking about Mineral King. And he mentions that he started skiing at Badger Pass, which was a ski resort there in California. And then he uh, invested in Sugar Bowl Ski Resort, which ended up in them actually renaming one of the mountains there, Mount Disney. And it's still that today. If you look at their map, there's Mount Disney, there's Disney Meadow, there's the Disney Express Lift. And that's where the first um, chairlift was ever in the state of California. And they did that with the money that Walt invested. So he kind of had his interest peak there. And then um, he was the director of opening and closing ceremonies for the 1960 Olympics in Squaw Valley. And there's another little interview you can find from PBS where Bob Hicks, who would eventually become the project manager for Mineral King, where he said, Walt turned to someone in Squaw Valley and said, well, I can build a better ski resort than this. <laughs> so I mean, you can see whether or not you believe Bob or not on that one, but I can envision that.
0: Right. You can almost picture Walt Disney saying or and believing something like that because he was always looking ahead. He would find a place and automatically start to think what he would be able to do with it and, and what he would be able to do to enhance it, whether it was Disneyland or somewhere else.
2: Well, and you see that with a lot of these projects, that it starts out as something kind of contained and then his ideas just grow and grow and grow and grow until the city's <laughs> almost like, whoa, hold back. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So, and and this really does start in the early 60s. Um, he said in, an, I know Walt said in an interview, around 1964, 65 or so is that when I he says when I saw Mineral King, you know, 5 or so years ago, I thought it was one of the most beautiful spots I had ever seen and didn't go on to say so I think we should develop it. He said I want to make sure we keep it that way and he wanted to make this world-class resort there while still keeping it unique and still preserving you know Walt was very much a naturalist he wanted to very much keep that part of um, the Sequoia National Park it's sort of the Mineral King is sort of this glacial valley in the southern part of the park he wanted to keep it beautiful but also make it something that was going to be more of an attractor and attractive and attraction to Um, to guests that might not have come there in the past. And it was going to be something that was not just going to be a a theme park like Disneyland, but it really was going to be a year-round vacation destination.
2: Right. I mean, at one point, they thought it was going to – I mean, some ideas had one hotel, had multiple hotels. There was going to be skiing, obviously, in the wintertime, ice rinks. Um, and then summertime, they're going to have tennis courts, pools, a golf course, and then multiple restaurants, one of which was where they had the original idea for the Country Bears.
0: Yeah. And, and as Walt started to, like you said, had started to sort of um, have the idea grow from. And, and what I love about this, too, is it came from something that Walt personally enjoyed. He enjoyed skiing, enjoyed spending time with his family. One of my favorite quotes from Walt is a man should never neglect his family for business. And it was something that he did with his family. And he wanted to have this American Alpine wonderland with this thousand room hotel and a movie theater and a general store and ice rinks and pools and tennis courts and a golf course and a hospital and a gas station and a conference center and a power station and a heliport. And, at one point, you know, he had an ideas for like 22 ski lifts and gondolas, which is interesting with the Skyway. You know, I keep calling it the Skyway. The Skyliner coming to Walt Disney World. He had Bob Gurr design this high-capacity ski lift. And so there was a lot that he wanted to do beyond just the mountain itself being the, um, the entertainment attraction. Like you said, he had Mark Davis design a show with this, with these audio-animatronic bears that, as we know, would eventually be repurposed and redesigned and become the Country Bear Jamboree in Walt Disney World. Uh, and there was a contract in place. I mean, this was something that, this was not just a blue-sky idea written down on the back of a napkin. This was a $35 million property and proposal where contracts were signed, but... As you know with many of the things we're going to talk about today not only did plans change but for a wide variety of reasons um, this 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 idea for not a theme park destination but a place where guests would be outside hiking and fishing and horseback riding and and swimming and having you know this this true sense of edutainment like we got um, with with. Epcot Center, not only did it change, but unfortunately, things did not necessarily work out exactly as they planned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because looking into this, I learned a little bit about national parks versus national forest and why Mineral King even existed where it was. I mean, it was almost entirely surrounded by the Sequoia National Park but there was just that tiny little bit at the southern end and an access road there. And because they thought that there was still potential to mine there, that was never enveloped into the national park. And there was a lot of debate back then between two different sides of how do you best appreciate an area like this? Like, do you do like what Walt said, where you make it accessible to people where they can come in and enjoy what this is? Or the other side kind of felt like, if you invite that many people in, how much risk is there that you're doing damage to this area? And one of the things that this whole project was going to require was a better road. And part of that road was going to have to go through the Sequoia National Park. And that immediately put up red flags for the Sierra club and other environmental groups. And, and really, I mean, Walt was an environmentalist this whole time. He was a member of the Sequoia, not the Sequoia of the Sierra club And it even that persona couldn't, you know, his assurances that he was going to keep this the beautiful place, the pristine place that the cars were going to be held at the the edges and and they were going to take all the environmental factors into account. It just really couldn't put those fears at bay for most of the people that lived in that area.
0: And to be clear, Walt was not the only visionary that had an idea for building something here um Janet right. Lee's husband Robert Brandt had a an entire mountain community planned here which was going to be a city with a hotel and apartments and shopping and um again you know the ski lift and all this kind of thing before Disney acquired the property and he had, there was actually a press conference at Mineral King Sept. now I, the 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 timing is important on September 19th, 1966, to announce the specific plans for the resort. The the California governor was there who supported the project and very much believed in what they wanted to do. They were talking about the funding of said roadway. But again, this is just about two months before Walt Disney passes. And I don't necessarily think that Walt's passing is the reason why it wasn't built I think that you're right I think the the legal issues that came up very very quickly is really what killed it so Disney originally originally wanted the resort to open around 1972 they they later adjusted those dates to 1976 because in uh mid 1969 the Sierra Club filed a federal lawsuit fearing that Disney's uh uh, building here was going to negatively impact the environment and like you said that that roadway was not going to be in keeping with not just the policies but the the spirit of that and even though the court the supreme court uh, rejected the suit in 1972 they filed an amended suit and eventually um they were It continued on for years, and the Mineral King was annexed to Sequoia National Park in the late 70s, and at that point, I think so much time and probably so much money and maybe even interest had been spent that um, Disney abandoned the project, and there, were, there have been talks that over the years, something similar, you know, every now and then kind of comes up again in terms of, conversation but that that section of the valley now is part of the Sequoia National Park so they could never actually build there again but i think it's just intriguing the idea of a disney you know I'm, I have the song for beautiful Mount Airy Lodge because I grew up in the Northeast playing in my head. You know, I sort of think about, you know, going up to the Poconos. It's almost the same type of thing that sort of, not just winter, but even summer escape that was not centered around Disney characters and attractions and dinners with princesses.
2: Yeah, and really, I mean, I I also found years later... The Sierra Club tried to help Disney actually potentially move this idea to private property near Independence Lake, which is kind of northwest of Lake Tahoe. But you get the feel that this was kind of really Walt's baby. And when he passed away. And then there's the whole legal issues with the original, obviously, but with with him gone and Roy gone, that connection to the original idea and everything, I think it just kind of was easy to let it go, especially with other things that were going on in the '70s, because you have, you know, Disney World and uh, and Tokyo Disney, and they've got their hands in other pies by that point. That maybe this one just didn't feel as important anymore.
0: And there's a part of me that is is so interested in Mineral King not just because of what it was and where it was, but this would have been Disney's first and probably not last foray into building something domestically that was not centered around a, um, a tourist destination based on theme parks and, and IP. And I think, too, from a, a, a sentimental point of view, I think it would have been a, a wonderful testament to Walt's... Vision and his creativity, and yes, even in, in environmentality, uh, in 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 building something like that. There, um, especially again, yeah, like I said, because of of where it was and the reason why he wanted to build it.
2: Yeah, I mean, without being part of the company, it's hard to know, but you do kind of wonder: Did this impact them when they went to do places like Vero Beach or Hilton Head or Alani? Because they all have kind of that similar feeling, very little actual Disney animated character presence, if any at all. And a lot of focus on the land where they sit, on the people that surround that land, you know, the location.
0: Yeah. And I think the the conversation is is interesting because I don't think this is a I don't think this is sort of a um, who's right or who's wrong in terms of you know, the, the, the this different sides. It was not just the Disney Corporation versus all of the envi- environmental groups. I mean, the U.S. Forest Service, you know, thought this was a great opportunity to bring in more tourists for outdoor recreation in California and I think could have served as, uh, a way to demonstrate that you can have these type of ffil- facilities living in concert with the environment without actually having to destroy it. I think the conservationists felt that mineral King, the the location itself might not have been ideal for that type of facilities, maybe because it was too large. It was just too grandiose. It would have spoiled some of the wilderness too much but I'm not sure that they were necessarily against the idea of something like this coming it just having to be the right size in the right place at the right time and sort of finding the the ideal compromise but without Walt and without his vision I think that's probably why the conversation stalled and eventually just faded away right But yeah, this is this is one of many that is uh, is definitely going to be um, and uh, I'm not even sure how I'm going to answer the question that once we get through these of which one of the ones um, I I think I would have liked to have seen built. You know, there was one. And again, going in no particular order, there was another one that I think a lot of people know about and we actually talked about recently on the show uh, back on the first. Finding Florida episode five fifty three, where St. Louis, when we, you know we're talking about sort of the expansion, the, what was the th- what was going to come after Disneyland, which was what made you sort of think about this next. Mineral King would have been next, but this idea of building the next Disneyland, the next park in America, a lot of of eyes and attention and memories will go to this St. Louis riverfront square which was not going to be a copy of Disneyland. Again, we talked about this a little bit on the show, but it was going to be a a presence for Disney in this part of the country. It was also going to be one that was going to honor not just the history of St. Louis, but really all of Missouri as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, as someone from the Midwest, I have to be a cheerleader for the, <laughs> for the Riverfront Square, because this would have been, you know, easy day trip. Um, yeah, I think the the original origins background of Riverfront Square are really interesting. I mean, everybody knows St. Louis for the St. Louis Arch. And if you had asked me how long the St. Louis Arch had been there, I would have been like, oh, that thing, that thing's probably like 100 years old. I <laughs> Clearly I have no concept of what it takes to build one of these things, but it's, I mean, it's not that old and they were building the gateway arch and they were building Bush stadium and the mayor wanted to add in a video about St. Louis and the history. And, and he kind of thought, well, we, we have a really famous guy that we know of that, It kind of calls Missouri home and maybe we can get him to make a film for us. So they started campaigning hard to get Walt to to make this film that they were hoping was going to be like a circle vision type experience there nearby Bush Stadium and the Gateway Arch. And it was going to be contained in this area called the Riverfront Square where there'd be mall and, and retail options and dining kind of think like really old school disney springs <laughs> and so they approach walt with it and he says yeah you know this this sounds interesting i'm going to have my guy work up a feasibility study and we'll look into it and if it sounds profitable maybe we'll even send some people from wed down there to kind of give you some pointers on some other things you can do so it starts out it's not a whole theme park it's just walt You know, trying to help out his home state of Missouri with with a project, and this was an area that I guess prior to them working on the arch and the stadium, that just was not a great area of St. Louis, and they they kind of had this whole revitalization project going on, and it just seemed like a really good opportunity.
0: And it would have been. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, it would have been something like you said. It's not another theme park. I mean, for one. It would be completely indoors, um, I, and I think when people hear St. Louis, sometimes they forget about this is not something that's going to have all these outdoor roller coasters and things like that. But there would have been, you know, a cover uh, at almost. And if you've ever been out, and I haven't been in years, but if you've ever been out to Las Vegas, and you and I, I assume Caesar's Palace still has this. I remember the interior of Caesar's Palace was this covered sort of shopping arcade that had a ceiling sort of painted to look like the sky, and, and it would change from day to night. Not that they wanted you to know what time it was outside, but it would change from day to night, and that's almost sort of how, of how I imagined this to be. Um, and it was interesting because just a, a year or so ago, from what I understand, the only actual plans and, and blueprints were sold at auction, and you really get a sense of, what this space was going to look like with, with these sort of giant escalators in between a ground level and a top floor level and a, a wide variety of different attractions inside.
2: Yeah, this building was a monster. I mean, by the time Walt goes down and sees the area and kind of commits like, yeah, I want to do something here. I want to do something more than just this film for you. And and he kind of starts to have his, um, you know, the wed at the time the imagineers work on all these ideas and this the building was going to be not just a full city block but then it, it changed into being a super block another case of you know Walt just making grander and grander ideas and they even were going to go so far down underground with a giant basement and the building was going to be four to five stories there were actually going to be water rides contained within this and a, and a giant steam paddle boat I mean, it, massive scale of construction.
0: And I think it, it touched on a lot of the things that, you know, we keep talking about things that are, are personal to Walt. You know, Walt was, he loved America. This was, you know, his part of the country. There's that quote from Walt, you know, that that's, if you could see inside his eyes, the the, the uh, you'd see the flag waving in red, white, and blue. But there was a Lewis and Clark adventure. There was a Mike Fink Ride, And you remember the Mike Fink keelboat here from Walt Disney World and New Orleans Square, a Davy Crockett, an attraction based on the Merrimack Caverns of Missouri, as well as things that we did see in Disneyland, some dark rides like Peter Pan and Snow White and Pinocchio. So there still would be those Disney touches and Disney elements in there, but it really was about where this was and what it was meant to celebrate.
2: Right. I mean, the, the whole building was going to kind of be split in two, and there'd be this diorama of the Mississippi River, and the one half of the building was going to focus on St. Louis of, of yesterday and today, and then the other half of the building would have been all New Orleans, which this is all kind of happening at the same time as the 1964 World's Fair, and Walt had gone there and seen some of the other Uh, pavilions that were going to be there ahead of time and one of them was a new orleans pavilion and that's kind of what spurred his interest on attaching this kind of this idea of the mississippi and and exploration south into even clear down to where they would have had this bayou boat ride and then they also wanted to have a walk through pirates attraction and then those kind of started to come together and we see almost the beginnings of Pirates of the Caribbean here in St. Louis even prior to when it would have existed or maybe they were kind of thinking at the same time for both St. Louis and Disneyland
0: and when you start to hear this you know you get excited even now in 2019 I'm like this sounds a great idea this would almost be something that would make me probably not get in the car, but get into a plane and go <laughs> to see it. And and it's it's one that continues to this day to be surrounded by rumor and myth and, and I think a little bit of misinformation in, in terms of why it was never built. It's something again we talked about in, in The Finding Florida. There was this there's this rumor, this ongoing rumor that the only reason why it wasn't built was because August Bush wanted Disney to sell alcohol in the parks. Walt said, I'm never selling alcohol in the parks. Hello, Fantasyland and Magic Kingdom. Those all are all not really true at all. I mean, for a lot of these things that never come to pass, a lot of times it's not something so dramatic, but it comes down to just dollars and cents. And, you know, Disney wanted to go forward with it but it was the city who wanted disney really for all intents and purposes to kind of pay for it all themselves
2: yeah yeah the alcohol issue i think it's it's kind of interesting where that comes from because admiral joe fowler we all know his his work that he did in, in Disney world. And he, I guess is kind of the originator of this story because he said he was sitting there and he heard August Bush, look at Walt and Tom, you know, a park that doesn't sell alcohol in St. Louis is never going to work. It's going to be a failure. And he said, Walt left and got on the plane and we never went back. And that's, and maybe Joe Fowler never did go back, but Walt did go back and he actually came up with a solution and a compromise in that there was gonna be a cocktail lounge up on the roof of this building, a restaurant, a cocktail lounge, and it would have views of the arch and there would have been um elevators that service just that lounge. So people could have gone through to get to where the alcohol was and and they or if you were in the amusement area, you could have had your hand stamped to go up there, and then that would have taken care of the issue where Walt had always said there would never be alcohol in his park. And right. <laughs> So there was no issue with August Bush. I guess from what I read, he still was trying to get Walt to partner with him to do some things at a location that he owned in Texas years later. And um, so, yeah, it really just came down to the money that the city was willing to spend versus Walt. They kind of thought that Walt thought that they were going to give him a turnkey ready building like you <laughs> here on Houses Now. And the city kind of thought, no, we're just going to give you the shell of a building. And it looks like there was about a nine million dollar difference, which in today's dollars, it's like, come on, nine yeah. million dollars. Just give me a St. Louis <laughs> right. Park. But, you know, back then that was a good chunk of money, especially when they're looking at other projects they're wanting to do. And that was really just the biggest barrier.
0: Yeah. And and as you were, were talking, you said the, the, the magic word or the magic state that comes up over and over and over again, a... I would say a year doesn't go by. Usually a couple of months don't go by before I get the email going. Hey, Lou, just want to let you know it's on the DL, but I live in blank Texas and Disney's buying up all this property. So get <laughs> ready for the big announcement because Texas is going to be the location of the next Disney theme park. We sort of, you know, giggle and joke about it now, except the people in Texas are like, no, Mongello, I'm, I'm serious. Disney's coming here. This is not the this was not the first, nor shall it be the last rumor of a Disney park going to and, and we'll talk about other sort of urban locations. But Texas has been one that has been on not just the rumor circuit for years, but it's actually one of the ones that Disney seriously considered a long time ago.
2: Are you talking about San Antonio or Dallas?
0: I was talking about that. I just want to say text position. Because
2: yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the San Antonio one's kind of a mystery to me. I'm I'm not sure where people get that. That's probably one of those emails you get, but it is out there. But yeah, text position at, and, and the other urban areas that kind of go along with that at the same time. But yeah, there's some very interesting things that that would have been located there. If you, if you look up the, the overhead art of that, it's kind of, I can't think, I don't think you can really call it a blueprint, but kind of concept art, but yeah, it was supposed to be like a festival marketplace. So this combination of, again, like riverfront retail and dining, and then that would have kind of been on the perimeter. And then in the interior, there would have been all of the, the interesting attraction stuff. But, yeah, that overhead includes a couple of of familiar names. I noticed one of them is mannequins, and it almost has what looks like turntables drawn on it, like mannequins had. <laughs> and then there also was an adventure club.
0: Yeah, so Texposition is another one of these that, that I think is not a name that people hear a lot about. And if they have, nor do they realize just how much Disney looked into this and was serious about it. So Disney hired Harrison Buzz Price, and you may or may not know that name. You've probably seen it on a window here and there. He was one who did a lot of the feasibility studies. He picked, literally picks the spot for places like Disneyland. And in the late 80s, um, he was looking for like you said this this massive festival themed marketplace mall that was going to be uh, you know we sort of keep coming back to to downtown Disney and Pleasure Island and Disney Springs it was going to be this high-end shopping mall with you know anchor department stores but there would also be some rides and other different entertainment venues and experiences for guests as well as fine dining. And when you start to say that out loud, you're like, Mangello, that sounds a lot like Disney Springs. It it absolutely does sound like Disney Springs, although there were going to be attractions or at least one attraction that they were looking at was this theater-based flight simulator based on um, – the the original sort of Star Tours model and concept. Um, and what Disney felt was having a, a ride there would bring sort of that Disney touch, that cutting edge technological aspect to the park. But, and although we know that they can do it here, we haven't really seen them do that yet. It's one that allows them to easily swap out the theme for... Uh, as time goes on, so it could have changed from Star Tours to Wally to whatever they wanted it to be. This way, there's a re factor f- for not just guests who were coming from out of state, but I think this is one that was really targeted towards the, the local customer base itself. And they felt that, you know, four and a half, five million people lived within a hundred miles of. Dallas alone. So those were going to be be the people that they really wanted to I don't want to say be the, the main attractors for because there obviously were uh outside guests and people who come into Dallas for uh conventions and otherwise. But this was going to be um and, and there's I've I've only seen one sort of three quarter look down sketch of what it would look like, but it was a pretty substantial piece of property um, located in, in what's known as the Turtle Creek area of Dallas just just off the i-78 which Disney felt was what well, they called it a yupscale entertainment area for the local market.
2: yeah I, I, the pictures I've seen are actually from an article about um, the gentleman that Disney was partnering with to do this His name was Jim Rouse. And at the same time, they were looking at Chicago's Navy Pier, too. So again, like knife to the heart for all of us Midwesterners. (laughs) Um, But that article presents a couple of really interesting things when it comes to these more urban environments that, like you said, they were looking more for locals. Like Eisner even mentions with regards to these that that these were not a replacement for Disneyland or Disney world. They did not expect someone to plan their whole vacation around one of these places. So they had to constantly be offering something that was new to those locals. So that was one of the biggest barriers that, that Jim Rouse and Disney faced was how do we keep this new and fresh and that that's going to be a constant cost. And when it's not a park, do you have a gate entry fee? Because, Mr. Rouse was more involved with the retail side. And from his vantage point, you don't want a gate fee for people who you're hoping are going to come in and buy merchandise at this location. And from Disney's standpoint, that was all they knew at that time was you charge a gate fee and that's how we cover what we're, what we're giving you. And so they ran into that problem. They also ran into an interesting problem that I would have not thought about. And that's that in an urban area like this, there is no berm. Mm -hmm. So if you're building like the Chicago Navy Pier example, you have to finish these buildings on all four sides. Versus, you know, you look at Google Earth like we do and you have these buildings that have very small facades compared to the size of their show building. So that was just a huge barrier, cost barrier. And Ultimately, Mr. Rouse backed away because he knew it just didn't jive up with what he usually did, which was these, you know, big retail heavy areas.
0: Yeah, but like I said, this is still a rumor that comes up a lot. I actually remember um, years ago. And so I'm trying to do the math. I, I mean, I guess it was close to 10 years ago. There was a huge Disney press event, a huge media event in Disney. Where they were being uh, very mysterious and cryptic about these very exciting, huge plans. They were gonna live, you know, they were gonna live webcast it and, and and all that kind of stuff like that. So the plan the the conversation about Texas. This is it. This is when the announcement for Texas is gonna come up. Every time there's some sort of, you know mystery Disney announcement, um, about, you know, the yearly promotion or whatever it might be the idea for, and I'm wondering how many people sometimes that the people that speculate have gone and bought land in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Sure. That this was going to be the next big land grab like Lake Buena Vista in Florida. And they were going to make, you know, a hundred times their, uh, their investment. But, um, You know, I I just I still don't know that, you know, of the 25 or so different Texas cities and towns that we have heard about that um, Texas will ever be a likely destination for a a third theme park or destination resort.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think even if it were in Texas, I think the idea of something like this has a greater probability of working today than it did back in the 80s just because we already have the proven example of Disney Springs that Disney is able to do something like this you know whether or not they would be able to translate that to a city that's away from an already established park I don't know I mean you have the example of Disney Quest that clearly like the Disney Quest in Chicago didn't last that long Mm. Um, but that was I mean that was solely a a gated ticketed experience you know if they built some type of larger complex with that would it have worked you know if it was more than just the the interactive games it might have appealed to more like a a broader audience range i don't know
0: yeah i mean and not to jump ahead but i i still um you know i i don't think disney is done domestically look we and and I know it's not necessarily continental in the United States, but you know, Alani works really, really well. Like, if you've never been to Alani, you you need to go to Alani. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's the the final resort of its kind or destination of that kind. But yeah, I'm not sure that Texas would be the ideal spot because you do potentially, or do you potentially cannibalize some of the audiences from both? the West coast and the East coast by being kind of right in, um, in the middle of that. So, um, and now all the people from all the people from Branson, Missouri are going, this is where it's coming. We know that Disney's coming here too. That's, you know, that's another one of the rumors that keeps on coming back.
2: It is kind of an interesting question though. I mean, even from listeners, like, would you do something like this in lieu of a Disney vacation? I mean, th- this would not be a replacement for me for a trip to Disney World, <laughs> right? <laughs> but maybe on a year when I can't afford it, would I spend some of my money going somewhere like this? You know, how far would you be willing to travel to get to something like this? I mean, I think that kind of informs over whether or not it would, it could be a success because maybe it wouldn't really be cannibalizing from California or Orlando because maybe people wouldn't view it that way. Well, or may, or maybe they just wouldn't want to spend this money in addition to it. I don't know.
0: So let, let's sort of take that that cannibal cannibalization of an audience and and use that as I'm trying to create a segue from there <laughs> in terms of another planned location, not even rumored, a planned location for what was going to be another Disney. I'm using air quotes. Um, park property. Marina, Port, not all that far from Disneyland. And I'm talking about Port Disney in Long Beach, California.
2: Yeah, Port Disney. This, And it's almost hard to talk about Port Disney with all, without also addressing Westcott. Right. We'll, we'll, I think we'll get to this, that later. Yeah, they I, think kind this, of, I think they kind of go together. Yeah. They, they kind of almost cannibalize on each other. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Port Disney was, was the Eisner era. And this was going to be an area in Long Beach and you, you almost have to go back just just a, a little ways back to if you if anyone recognizes the name Jack Rather and Rather Corp. And this was the gentleman that Walt partnered with in order to build the Disneyland Hotel. And as part of that, Jack Rather and his company would then be the exclusive supplier or, you know, have the exclusive rights to build these Disney hotels. Well, Michael Eisner comes on board and he very much was into the idea of expanding and building more hotels. Clearly, he was, you know, the instigator for that in Disney World. He wanted to do the same thing in Disneyland and was not able to. Well, not to be disrespectful, but as fortune would have it, Mr. Rather passes away and Disney purchases the rather corp and as part of that they get this land lease option in long beach and if you've ever been to long beach that's the home of the queen mary and the the cruise ship and then at that point in time it was also home to the spruce goose which was howard hughes wooden plane and these were the two attractions that sat there on long beach and michael eisner was really looking at a way that they could develop this and it was going to kind of have two sides to it on the on the the north and south end of Queensway Bay, and the north side would have been the city side where there would have been a Tidelands Hotel, Shoreline Hotel, Shoreline Aquatic Park, a Marina Hotel, and then a retail entertainment center, kind of like what we were talking about with Position. And then on the port side, or it would have been called the port side, and that would have been the south side of the bay, there was going to be a cruise ship port Not necessarily for the Disney Cruise Line, because that didn't exist yet, but for other cruise ships coming in. And then two more hotels, one called the Port Hotel and then the Canal Hotel. And then the big ticket was going to be Disney Sea, which, again, (laughs) these are breaking my heart because (laughs) I remember being... I'm not going to give my age, but I remember being a little kid when the concept art came out for Tokyo Disney Sea. And I remember flipping through that Disney magazine so many times looking in wonder and awe at that concept art. So the idea that there could have been a Disney Sea in the U.S. because it's not likely I'm ever going to make my way to Japan, that I could have seen that, it just seems like a real loss. And especially when you look at the concept art for this place. I mean, the, the big weenie would have been these giant bubbles that inside of, there would have been, the, the, at that point in time, the world's largest aquarium, along with several other attractions. And then beyond that, other areas like Mysterious Island, a hero's harbor with a Sinbad attraction, and an aqua labyrinth maze with walls made out of water. I, I don't know how you do that, but <laughs> it sounds incredible. And then um, venture reefs where there would have been like uh, snorkeling and somehow they got past the Disney lawyers, the idea of putting guests in cages to swim <laughs> with sharks and then also a boardwalk rainbow pier, which kind of sounds a lot like what pier- Paradise Pier and then now Pixar Pier eventually became.
0: Well, and if you think about this, too, let's sort of put it in in context and and frame it in terms of time. This is 1990, right? Middle of 1990. So we referenced, not going to be the first or the last time we referenced the Disney decade with Michael Eisner. And they've got, you know, nearly 450 acres to put something that is is akin, but very much unlike Mineral King, because it's not just this marine themed amusement park so again Disney is thinking about the environment and exactly where they are but this marina and a cruise ship port like before they actually get into the cruise ship business um, a a number of years later um, a, a huge retail and entertainment area which really and if you look at the maps of this uh, of Queensway Bay at at the mouth of the Los Angeles River, you really get a sense of them sort of owning this almost aquatic cul-de-sac of of land and sea, as it were. But this was not just something that was on the internal Disney drawing boards. Um, they actually published a single, one and only. Port Disney News in 1991 that they distributed to people who lived in the Long Beach area in order to, I guess, generate excitement and maybe do a little bit of, you know, surveying in terms of uh, reaction. I'll, I'll read you just a little bit of what it said. Welcome to Disney Sea. Here you will experience a thrilling journey through the mysteries, challenges, and natural wonders of the sea. Among the highlights of your trip will be an intimate encounter with our planet's most important environmental resource and the chance to participate in exciting research activities conducted by some of the leading oceanic scientists. That sounds like a little bit of Tokyo Disney Sea and a whole lot of the seas with Nemo and friends. Uh, they talk about these fantastic re- voyages possibly becoming reality. Based on this conceptual master plan so that everybody can experience these marvels of nature's secret world beneath the sea and get first-hand experience of how the oceans affect human life as well as the life of the planet. So there is absolutely a, an educational, a an environmental component to this which I think is something that Disney wanted to do and I think because of where and when and what they were building I think they needed to do that as well so it didn't just feel maybe like it did up in the Sequoias like Disney was coming in to build a theme park in this area where nature and the water is so very important.
2: Yeah and actually there there were some rules on the books there too that the the coastal commission required that they had public access to the beach there i mean this was all part of a an initiative to try to make the port and the beach more accessible more inviting get people out there and and experiencing like you said experiencing the ocean that this is you know one of the greatest resources that we have that it's something that I mean, even still today, there's a lot we don't know about it. And for a lot of people, it was very uncharted. And yeah, it, there definitely was an educational aspect to this place. I mean, there very much was the the Disney Sea, you know, would have had a Nemo's land cruiser and, and the city of Atlantis e-ticket ride and things like that. But there also was this research center that sounds, you know, a lot like what the Living Seas was originally. You know, these people doing, you know, rehabilitation for sea life and and they they even mentioned that it would have had like the largest library, Mm -hmm. you know, collection of information for people to come there from, you know, researchers all over the world to come there and study.
0: And every paragraph and almost every sentence of that newsletter talked about the the educational aspect so it's our vision for long beach to be a singular blend of entertainment and education through disney style rides and attractions marine research facilities and oceanarium and other aquatic adventures they want to sensitize millions of visitors to the enormous challenges and opportunities of our seas our most precious resource in a setting that encourages play and fantasy, they want guests to wonder about it, to ask questions and have a memorable time. So they also went on to talk about exploring the myths and the romance and the challenges and the mysteries of the ocean. So this idea of breaking down the barriers between guests and the sea while making it truly entertainmentable, entertainment, it's entertaining and educational all at the same time, again, which, you know, we, we hear that, we, we start to think about uh, Epcot, was a, a wonderful mix of fantasy in terms of, okay, maybe that, you know, maybe the shark cage encounter may have been a little bit, you know, but this idea of mysterious island and pirate island it screams Disney. It feels Disney, but it's also something that was very different than Disneyland.
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. That's kind of a pattern you'll see in this, and I think probably the next two that we're going to talk about. And I don't know if this was something that Michael Eisner pushed specifically during that area or or era, or if that was something that Imagineers really wanted. But there's very much a sense here and a couple of the others of wanting to offer the edutainment aspect.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times why these projects don't get built. I mean, there's, there are recurring themes, right. In terms of environmental issues, traffic issues, um, um, employment issues, but a lot of times it also comes down to money. And, you know, the, the estimated cost for the port Disney resort was, Supposedly in the $3 billion range, I mean this was not going to be um, uh, any small undertaking um, by any stretch of the imagination, but there was local opposition, um, which I think ended up being a big part of the reason why. Because that $3 billion go- number goes up exponentially when the city and the area and the maybe the, the environmental groups are opposed to what you're doing you see how it could not only delay but but cause a huge financial uh have a huge financial impact on it so it's late the next year that they cancel the plans for port disney but wait don't worry we've got something else on the horizon
2: yeah, like I said, you can't really talk about Port Disney without talking about Westcott. I mean, there's a lot of people who think, I, I, researching it, I'm not inclined to think this really, but there's a lot of people who claim that Port Disney wasn't really even something they were ever going to do, that it was just, well, we're going to pretend like we're interested in this over here to try <laughs> to get Anaheim to agree to what we really want to do over there. But I I don't think you put that much effort into designing something if you never had any intention of ever building Port Disney. I mean, I think they really had some intention there. And I think clearly they liked what they did because they they took it over to Tokyo and implemented a lot of it.
0: And I don't want to I don't want to rub salt or Tabasco sauce in your wound. But if you (laughs) listen to me talk about Disney Sea in the past, it is far away um, the most spectacular Disney park that I have ever I mean it's and you know Walt Disney World is near and dear to my heart and and it's the place that I call home but there there's nothing close and having seen what some of the ideas for the Disney Sea Sea theme park in in Port Disney would have been with those Heroes Harbor and the Grecian Village and this Asian water market and the the Venture Reefs only got me more excited for what was eventually never built, but we've got to find a way to get you over to Tokyo at some point.
2: I, I do understand that they do have like a queen Mary looking cruise ship in Tokyo, Disney sea though. Right. They do in the American Harbor. Yeah. So I think that's kind of cool (laughs) that they took, you know, what was there in in the original port and, and transplanted it over, but yeah, back to Westcott. Um, Again, Michael Eisner wanted to expand, wanted additional hotels, and so they've they've got this area that they're looking at across from Disneyland, and the idea was to build Westcott, a riff off of Epcot. I, I kind of feel like they could have come up with a better name than that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Epcot's. I mean, it's 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 not even it's not the word. It's it's experimental prototype. You know, I mean, there's a purpose for all those letters. <laughs> Westcott is just like, well, let's just take that EP off and throw something else on the front. But yeah, they they were going to try to build this park after the success of Tokyo Disneyland and after Disney NGN Studios. And this their catchphrase for it was the Seven Wonders of Westcott, and four of those wonders would have been more comparable to the world showcase side of epcot and then three of them would have been comparable to the future world section so in the the where you would have entered would have been the americas or the new world and that was so that it visually complemented the entrance to disneyland you would have had this old turn of the century look of the us main street section there at the front that would have would have complimented nicely when you looked either way from the entrance to Disneyland or the entrance to Westcott. And there you would have had an updated American adventure, a native American show, you know, an indoor fiesta for Mexico kind of makes you think of, of the, the Mexican pavilion at Epcot. Um, and then an Aztec Incan show about some of the legends of South America. And moving on, you, you would have had, you know, additional attractions and areas for each of those other world sections. So the next, the next section flanking the U S would have been Europe. And that would have had a circle vision called time from time to time, which eventually was put in place in Paris and then eventually moved to Disney world. So from time to time is another name for timekeeper that, that we ended up with here. Um, It would have had a trans European railroad, a Russia show that they never implemented at Epcot when the Russian pavilion was never built. Um, Then you would have had another world section that would have been Asia with there actually would have been a hotel there, an Indian palace hotel. So it would have been one of these first instances of you being able to, you know, spend the night and immediately enter the park. Um, A carousel with mythic Asian animals, the big e-ticket for Westcott ride the dragon would have been um, a Chinese great wall roller coaster over the dragon's teeth mountain. Uh, and then moving on, you would have had world of Africa would have been the fourth section in, in the world showcase type area. And this, this one kills me. Michael Eisner really bad wanted for this section because this Africa was originally supposed to represent Africa in the Mideast. He wanted a three religions of the world attraction and this just sounds fraught with issues from the beginning but they kind of came to this conclusion that you know the the three major religions all agree on the seven days of creation and they went so far as to have seven different artists who were going to kind of depict each of those each day of creation and they were going to I don't know if this would be a ride through attraction or how this was going to work but it sounds interesting but they I guess they quickly decided this probably wasn't a good idea (laughs) But that was going to be the the world section of those those seven wonders. So those four wonders
0: and everything about that excites me. Right. And as much as I love Epcot Center here, I I think this was going to be it was not going to be a, a carbon copy of what we have here. It was going to be different in a lot of different in a lot of ways. First and foremost, it was going to transform what was at the time a parking lot into uh, um, an expansion of Disneyland, so now Disneyland, unlike Florida, would become a multi-day destination, right? Because what was happening was people were going to Disneyland for the day and then going other places in Southern California. Disney obviously wants to keep the guests and their pocketbooks in and around Disneyland as much as possible, so that's why this idea, and, and I love the idea of the hotel inside the the theme park. Um, the other thing that I, that really uh, uh, was of interest to me too was this world cruise, right? This yes. a cruise around the world showcase that was sort of an amalgam of wandering the promenade and world showcase with the historical elements of. of of meeting and and communicating with each other from spaceship earth and a little bit of world emotion and a little bit of horror. So it took sort of elements from all of those different attractions and brought in not just sort of a boat ride past or through pavilions, but there would have been scenes and audio animatronics of, Leonardo da Vinci and the Mona Lisa Mona not Lisa Lisa Mona Lisa the burning of Rome the Sistine Chapel and the thing that made this different was it was not sort of a grand circle tour around the world it would allow guests to embark or disembark at different docks throughout each of the different lands so it almost sounds like what was the, um, the 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 old water taxi in Animal Kingdom that never really worked yes, well. in the people Discovery know, River boats, right? yes. Nobody really knew what it was supposed to do, but I think if they would have positioned this correctly, the idea of, you know, getting on in Japan and getting off over by, and this is the thing that I would have loved to have seen Uh, As part of the first expansion, a huge Egyptian palace. I've been waiting for Egypt to come to Epcot forever. Um, And an additional hotel. Um, This would have been something similar to Epcot's World Showcase, but I think unique in its own right.
2: Yeah, and and I guess that cruise would have lasted 45 minutes if you did the whole entire thing. So... Yeah, that, that sounded incredible, that alone. But yeah, this sounds like they took like all the best pieces of Epcot and, and then whatever they couldn't fit in, they stuck in a shaker and like threw it on the world cruise. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> but, the, I, and there was other, you know, something else in, if you read through some of the original um, plans and, and marketing materials for it, because they did announce that this was coming, was there was going to be a little section of Tivoli Gardens, which I liked because... It, it, A lot of people maybe don't realize that that, that that little Danish, not little, Danish park really was one of the other things that helped influence Walt and his idea for creating Disneyland. So I think that was not just a tribute to the the park itself, but a little bit of a tribute to Walt as well. And there's also there's also going to be a, a train ride to a, a trans world or trans European train ride through the park too.
2: Yeah. And one of the things I thought was interesting in the Africa section was they were going to have this giant African art exhibit that was owned by Tishman. And at that point in time, it was being housed in another museum, but then they were going to permanently move it here to Westcott. And it was going to be the largest collection of that in the world. So again, that whole edutainment aspect mm-hmm. is very present here also.
0: And you know, we were talking about the, the three religion uh, concept. There was also in that Africa Middle East area that they were going to be sort of putting together. There was going to, and I have to imagine it would almost be a little bit more of a thrill ride because it was supposed to be a white water raft ride down the fictional Congo Beezy River. Um, it sounds like one of those fake names you hear, like made up on Match Game PM, right? <laughs> it's the Congo Beezy River. And there was also going to be an exhibit on farming culture, which. Like Epcot, also makes me feel that they have not forgotten not just about the cultural aspects of what Westcott was going to be, but the educational opportunities that would be present therein.
2: Right. And then beyond this area, there, you know, this is going to have the lagoon like what you have there at Epcot. But then there was going to be, in original plans, this giant gold 300 foot sphere in place of Spaceship Earth, and it was going to be called Space Station Earth. And then kind of later on, they decide, okay, maybe 300 feet is a little excessive. And and so they kind of were debating about what they would do for that central piece. But there would have been a big waterfall inside there and a lobby that would have led you on to Venture Port, which would have then led to the, the three wonders of what would have been like Future World, and this, there's a little bit less information on, at least from what I can find, than than the world showcase similar side, and mm-hmm. um, but we do know that they were going to be the wonders of earth or nature, wonders of living, and then wonders of space, and on wonders of living, you get a lot of um, the wonders of life basically being lifted up, trans transplanted to wonders of living, but let's not bury the lead here. You get Journey into Imagination, and not the original, like, a companion to.
0: Right, so, so right, now you have to go and visit both, right, because, yes. um and, and, you know, there's, it's interesting, too, because what they were trying to do and where they were doing it also raised you know we get excited when we hear about what was coming we're like yeah come on man just do it i'll you know i'll, I'll pay for it i'll go <laughs> you, you start to think of the numbers right and again we're back up into the 3 billion dollar plus range which is fine you you think you know it's it's probably a number that they could make back um but they were speculating in terms of the number of visitors that this would potentially New visitors, that this would attract by, you know, the late 90s, um, would that, could they financially justify that number? And that was a little bit difficult to do. Plus, I think something else that gets lost in the discussion of Westcott is the idea that Disney wanted to do kind of what they did here in Florida decades later, so... You know, again, referencing back to the Finding Florida, we're we we start we're, we're starting to talk about uh, once the property has been decided on, what Disney wants to do in terms of creating its own sort of quasi-government district. But in California, they wanted to create their own um, special assessment district. So they wanted to get money for improvements to attractions. They wanted to add more hotels. They wanted to do a lot of renovations to the Disneyland Hotel and this new Disneyland Center. They'd create this 5,000-seat Disneyland bowl to be built outside of the park gates and a boardwalk um, with outdoor dining. And there was a lot that was going to have to happen in terms of infrastructure and how it was going to potentially impact not just Disneyland but the surrounding areas you know there's a there's a improvements to infrastructure especially in an in a developed area is no small task and it is one that that absolutely um, can and will impact the area around it and and I think that is part of one of the reasons why Westcott doesn't necessarily get much farther in terms of actual planning and design and execution as it does in the excited minds and hearts of Disney fans who obviously ultimately wanted this not just second park, but this full fledged resort and entertainment complex to be built. Obviously, ultimately, we get, you know, Disney California Adventure in downtown Disney, but it would have been uh, Westcott would have been and done and felt very different than what we have in Disneyland and DCA today.
2: Right. And I think you have to look at, too, what happened in between them creating this master plan versus when DCA was built. You also have the, the Euro Disney first year. You know, almost a billion dollar loss that first year, where they, you know, they don't want to say that that directly impacted, but there's there's no way that didn't somewhat impact what projects they were able to take on in the early '90s.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's easy for us to say, you know, three billion dollars. What's three billion dollars among friends? But you're right. All of these um, all of these factors um, affect the Uh, ability to do it so it it doesn't um it doesn't take very long too for residents to start to say hey wait a minute like all this expansion it sounds good and yes there's going to be more jobs but how is it going to affect those of us who are already living here how's it going to affect our infrastructure what because of how large Westcott was going to be in terms of sort of blowing out the berm as it were and having these areas that were going to be outside necessarily what already uh, DCA currently looks like. Local residents were concerned about what this was going to be in terms of traffic and you know pollution and intruding on The residential areas, and with that, and the financial problems. I mean, again, they sort of officially decide to scrap this idea in the mid 90s. Um, and from what I understand, you know, Eisner basically is like, All right, we need to just sit back, relax, and figure out what we're doing. We're going to Aspen and We're going to, it takes 30 executives with them to try and come up with what we're going to do instead of this $3 billion massive expansion of what would have been, you know, Disneyland and and Westcott.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, obviously, they, like you said, they come out with something completely, entirely different with DCA and, and they discover that, you know, California is the focus we want. And I, which, you know, I've never been to DCA, so I can't really judge. I, I've, I've read a lot about it. I hope to go someday. But, you know, I I think Westcott sounded amazing. The whole kind of twist on original Epcot of this, you know, melting pot, civilization. And I also think it's interesting that several times over, when you look at like old presentations on this, that the Imagineers noted that this would have been more child friendly than Epcot, which I think is kind of an interesting position considering so many people today, that's kind of their cry against some of the things that have happened in Epcot. But even back then they recognized that we need something that's just like a little bit more family friendly.
0: Well, and I think something else that happened too was as time went on, um, and and the conversation of Westcott continued and continues to to come up over and over again back in the mid late 90s i, I remember tony baxter spoke at a convention and talked a little bit more about what his um, individual and sort of collective vision was for westcott and started to use words that were using a lot more now it was a lot more interactive it was a lot more participatory it was not going to be a passive experience where you were just going to watch as i say the next words coming out of my mouth think about galaxy's edge you were meant to be part of the story and the characters and the activities there were meant to interact with you and help you craft your own story the idea was that you were not just having a vacation in Disneyland and Westcott, you were living out your dream of going to Asia and staying there, right? You had the hotel, you know, in the Asian section and the these European and African sections as well. So it really was meant to be something that you didn't walk into and leave. Think Galaxy's Edge, think the Star Wars Hotel, but it was going to be something that they wanted to be Truly experiential.
2: Yeah, it almost makes you wonder. I mean, because there is very little information on what the wonders of space area was going to be. And, you know, have we already seen that? Did, Did that inform on what they did with Mission Space or what they are going to be doing with the space restaurant? And they also, like you said, talked about the interactivity. They talked about kids doing these interactive Things to find out and learn about what their place in the world was going to be through through games, through enjoyment, through edutainment. Are there old plans that are somewhat informing on the new play pavilion and the interactivity of that? Like, are they taking some of Westcott and and shifting some of Epcot toward those ideas?
0: I would not be all that surprised. I'm treading carefully, I would not be (laughs) surprised if at this year's D23 Expo in Anaheim, California, we do not hear, I would bet dollars to donuts, we're going to hear more about what is coming to Epcot. I would not be surprised if some of the elements directly or indirectly related to Westcott are things that are going to be part of this Epcot not just reimagining, but I think, expansion, um, because Epcot is and, and was, especially world showcase, was very much sort of this world's fair type of of environment where Westcott, everything would be different. and if you if you look online at some of the the concept art for Westcott, is some of the most beautiful Disney yes. concept art I have ever seen. So you mentioned a a, sp- a spaceship Earth-like globe. I want to put this in context, and again, part of the reason why I'm, you, we had the conversation about people who were resident of the surrounding area, instead of a 180-foot geodesic sphere, it's going to be a 300-foot golden sphere inside this lattice work of metal set on this very lush green island and there's there's bridges and waterfalls and you have to sort of ascend up into the globe to ride what is going to be a very different version or type of attraction than what we have for space Uh, A spaceship Earth. I keep on calling space station Earth. Uh, Their space station Earth would have been very different than our spaceship Earth.
2: Yeah, you mentioned the concept art and, and I actually have I'm looking at the one right now that's very purple, pink with the big golden sphere in the middle. And my first impression when I pulled that up and I'd I'd seen it in the past before, but when I looked at it again was it was so reminiscent of that concept art that was released, I think at the last D23 or maybe since then of what that area behind spaceship earth is going to look like in the future. It's that, that piece that looks very purples and blues and lush. And it just gives you that same type of feel. It just immediately made me think, you know, are they heading kind of in this direction
0: And and something else that they were gonna do too was, they really wanted to have as much control over your when I say control over your experience, they wanted to be personal to you. But the the all of the pavilions in Future World would have been indoors, right? They sort of uh, analogous to these giant themed sound, sound stages. And again, Tony Baxter said he wanted you, especially in, in the the world showcase-ish aspect, they wanted you to have they wanted you to be introduced to these cultures, to have less fear and apprehension about becoming part of that world. So there was a Wonders of Earth pavilion that would allow you to go through the jungle, like underwater areas, the Arctic and the desert while the wonders of living would be focused on the human mind and body. So think Making of Me, Body Wars, Cranium Command, sort of in one, and Wonders of Earth almost being that um, non-futuristic version of the different environments that we would get to see and go through in an attraction like uh, like Horizons.
2: Yeah, they actually mentioned in that uh, in that earth area that the, the, the frozen tundra-type environment, they were going to make snow, like literal snow that you could have snow fights with or, you know, you could ice skate. So, yeah, it was very much going to be contained, like you mentioned, you know, controlling the environment so that you could experience these places that you potentially had never, you know, whether it was desert or jungle or...
0: or right, they wanted you to be able to walk into these controlled environments, these individual worlds, like there's the wonders of space, right? So you sort of, again, this was one of uh, the the early ideas for a space-themed pavilion, but, you know, the old world and the new world and the world of Asia and the world of Africa, getting you to be able to go in and understand what those are. And I think in a different way than what we have In World Showcase now, you know, you walk through the German pavilion and you can go into the restaurant and you can get a sense of what the architecture might be like and the food might be like and music and cast members. But this would have been something on a much deeper level, I think, in terms of what each of the pavilions was going to be able to provide guests.
2: Yeah, it sounds more akin to like what you get with Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. With Asia and Africa, where there's a there's a greater depth, you're you're walking further in, you're experiencing a larger environment than you know some of the pavilions are larger, but a lot of the pavilions are fairly self-contained and you're kind of just seeing facades and you know retail areas or a restaurant or whatever these sound like something that you would have traveled further into
0: yeah and and I think the as we talk about it, right I start to get myself more excited, like, God, I would have loved this idea. But I think part of the problem is, you know, we we read about this, we think about this, we imagine what it's like in our own little bit of a bubble, forgetting about what was happening on the opposite side in terms of local business owners and neighborhood groups and environmental groups and the city and, and local governments and and some of the issues that. Um, they raised whether it's you know economic environmental you know or otherwise which really is what at first started to shrink down the plans for Westcott around 92 or so they they took this idea of a Hollywood land section out of the plan then all of a sudden the issues like you said with Euro Disneyland start to have an effect on the project and Claim as you might that they have one has nothing to do with each other. I mean, it's it's one company, it's one umbrella. And if they see that something new that they have created is is hemorrhaging money, like Lee Cockrell said in a show a while back, at a million dollars a day, um, you start to run into funding concerns. And then they tried to get the federal government to pay for parking structures. That fails. There's an additional $250 million. So all these things start to bring about a change in the reality of what Westcott can be. They start to scale back what the number of hotels is going to be. So the rooms go from, you know, 4,500 rooms to 1,500 rooms. They didn't want to make the same mistakes that were being made in um uh, uh, I, I keep on calling it Disneyland Paris, Euro Disneyland and have to start thinking about some of the other um, um, issues that are in play at the same time.
2: Yeah, and then they end up abandoning West entirely by 1995. But I do think it's interesting that they, they have all these struggles, you know, like the financial struggles with Euro Disney and 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 kind of the idea that some of these things are costing too much, but then there was this whole idea that they were potentially going to build port Disney and, and build Westcott. You know, if they, if they weren't pitting them against each other, were they really thinking they could build both of those at the same time and then throw into the mix, the next one we're going to talk about Disney's America. And, you know, they've got several fronts that they're going to spend money in and fight wars on and, it well,
0: means- and the thing that was somewhat surprising to me about Westcott and and again, the benefit of um, being able to meet and hear from and see and, and I applaud, you know, like D23 and stuff like that. When you get to hear from guys like Marty Sklar years later and he's like, you know what? I wasn't re- I was surprised to hear that Marty Sklar was not necessarily on board with the whole Westcott idea he didn't want to look he he sort of was following Walt you don't follow pigs with pigs he didn't want to spend you know nearly a a decade doing something that he felt was already done in Epcot Um, he thought it was a bit of a cumbersome idea but what he did feel was that you know we're in Southern California and Everything here is sort of spread out so very far. Hollywood Boulevard is over here, and then there's you know the the history of Walt coming from Calif- coming from Kansas City. There's all these other California success stories, and maybe what we need to do is bring this idea of California not on a on a macro level, but on a micro level, um, you know, and and that's part of how the idea for california adventure comes to be look even john hench said um supposedly um you know i obviously wasn't there but supposedly john hench when he saw the plans for westcott he's like i like the idea better when it was a parking lot (laughs) so (laughs) um you know i maybe um maybe sometimes the enthusiasm gets gets the best of of everybody but um who knows you know some of the ideas this is of all the things that we're talking about maybe some of these ideas um won't necessarily ever die so you you mentioned what is obviously one of the the bigger elephants in the room and i think it's one that is probably going to be deserving of its own show because of not just how big it was and could have been But how far along it was and some of the reasons why Disney's America never came to be. So, Kendall, I think a lot of people, they hear the name Disney's America and they're like, yeah, wasn't that the thing they were going to build somewhere on the... Sort of take us back in terms of what and where Disney's America was going to be.
2: Again, this is the Eisner era And he kind of went about buying land up the same way that Walt did for Walt Disney World, where they used uh, pseudonyms to secure land options and to purchase land. And where they did that was in Haymarket, Virginia, which is about five miles from the Manassas Battlefield, and then just a short distance from Washington, D.C. And so because of that, they had this whole idea of building um, a theme park with the tagline Recall the Paths live the present and this would have covered American history from the 1600s to the present then, you know, the the 1990s with different focus areas. I mean, the, the entrance area would have been the crossroads of the U.S., which would have been kind of an early 19th century. Again, this would have included a hotel where you could have had this whole stay in the park type experience. And then there would have been a President's Square a Native American area, Civil War fort, um, an area kind of focused on the Industrial Revolution called Enterprise, Victory Field that would have focused on the World War One and Two, um, State Fair to kind of give you that whole Ferris wheel, you know, Midwest America State Fairground, and a Family Farm, and then We the People attraction. And each of these areas had their own you know, restaurants, attractions, et cetera, like, you know, a typical Disney park.
0: And, you know, as you start to go through those different lands, um, and, and we'll talk more about what it actually looked like and sort of uh, the train aspect and, and things that are similar things. When you start to talk about those things, it makes me think that this is an idea that, Really, although Walt had long passed, it really sort of made me think back to Walt Disney and Disneyland, right? Again, we talked about Walt's personal love of America and his original plans for Disneyland to create that Liberty Street um, just off uh, sort of Main Street, which would have had those recreations of... Colonial America and the shops and blacksmiths and silversmiths. And there would have been that Liberty Street, which would have ended up in Liberty Square and Philadelphia and Independence Hall, some elements of which we get here eventually in Walt Disney World, but really sort of expanding on that in, in Disney's America.
2: Yeah. And you get the feeling that even though, you know, when you look at their brochure that they actually went all the way to producing for this park, there's no direct comparison to the St. Louis riverfront, but you kind of get the feeling that it's a lot of what Walt was going for there. That it's the celebration of, you know, America, what it's been through our history, you know, like it would have been there. You know, even that though, that was isolated to St. Louis and new Orleans, it was the same type of concept that he was going for.
0: And you know, it's something you know it's something that obviously Walt was excited about in the 50s and it was something that Michael Eisner again a lot of this is happening in the right in the 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 heart of the Disney decade so when they announce this in 1993 Michael Eisner um comes out and he he wrote in in a book about how much he loved this particular project how passionate he was about it how he personally like made and looked at and you know approved the site and the plans for him so this is one that I believe him when he says that he had a personal love in interest in doing when they announced this again it's a huge it's a 1200 acre park in when they announced it in in 1993 in early 1993. I'm sorry, Leah. I think they announced it late. I want to say late, maybe like November 1993.
2: Yeah, it looks like it was November with the uh, the intention of opening in '98.
0: And for oddly enough, it didn't have a three billion dollar budget, which was nice. It was it was like a discount park, so six hundred and fifty million dollars or something. So
2: yeah, but I mean, clearly, with some of these things that they had planning, it doesn't look like they were cutting costs. I mean, they had there's there's a little- it looks kind of like what we get with Rapids. I mean, it's a river rapid type ride. There would have been the um, roller coaster in the industri- or called the Industrial Revolution in the Enterprise section that would have had you going, twisting, turning through this turn-of-the-century mill and avoiding the steel. And I mean, they had guys in mean, the victory field. They would have had, um, it's about using VR technology in the early 90s. So I don't know if you're envisioning like those giant old headsets back then that you would have <laughs> had to have worn, but they they wanted to use that to simulate, you know, combat, like driving a tank and jumping out of a plane. I mean, they definitely had big ideas. It, clearly they came up with some way to do it on a smaller budget.
0: And look, the the intent of the park was to celebrate America and tell American history in a world, in a land, in the way that Walt probably would have wanted, where you're not just watching it, but you're living through it. So again, you, you mentioned the different areas. So the crossroads takes place in, you know, a Civil War era village that would have been sort of the the hub of Disney's uh, America, right? So we get that sort of sense of, of the 1840s. The Native American section would have taken place between like the 1600s and the 1800s. Start thinking Pocahontas because you know that's probably would have, they would have um, highlighted a lot of those mid-Atlantic tribes with you know exhibits and crafts and shows and that Lewis and Clark, again, no good idea goes away. The Lewis and Clark expedition whitewater raft ride comes up the President's square is is the late is the mid 1750 50s to the 1800s the civil war fort the civil war fort would have had this circle vision attraction the uh enterprise not as in starship enterprise but in sort of the industrial revolution enterprise celebrating all of these important times and milestones in American history even sort of that that in in the we the people this this replica of what Ellis Island was going to be in that family farm again which I hear family farm I think this is something that is almost a, a tribute to Walt as well and then you've got the victory field for the 1940s in terms of um the 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 world war eras it sounds wonderful when you think about it but what it instantly does is from the the moment that this is announced and and I remember you know being a disney fan and growing up in the northeast i remember vividly when this was announced and very quickly starting to hear a lot of Very loud, pre-internet, mind you, but still very, very loud opposition that seemed to be coming from a lot of different directions all at the same time.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple really interesting quotes that come from within Disney. Um, Michael Eisner was quoted in The Washington Post. He said, we're going to be sensitive, but we will not be showing the absolute propaganda of the country. And then Bob Weiss, Weiss, weiss. Um, who was VP at the time, he said, we're hoping to be really a little controversial and not be quite as nice and sweet as Disney parks may have been in the past. So immediately, one of the oppositions that they faced was, are they gonna be able to depict history in an amusement theme park in a way that's respectful? Uh, Specifically, when it comes to Native American, African American history, you know, there was a lot of concern,
0: Right, and, and this is actually something that, that still comes up sometimes when you have attractions like the American Adventure that, and this is not to meant to, to veer off into a conversation of, but when that you depict history, there are choices that have to be made in terms of do you show the glorious achievements and wonderful moments, or do you take a very honest, open look at everything that happened? And I think the idea... I play devil's advocate here. I think the idea was they wanted to theme this park and the attractions and the shows about real events that happened in American history, which in and of itself is going to cause controversy. And while some people complain now that that current attractions maybe ignore some of the negative aspects of history, when you outwardly come out and say yeah we are going to do a park about the civil war and we have to talk about slavery and i I, the quote that i read from bob weiss says, we you are going to know what it was like to be a slave and to escape in the underground railroad you have to you have to believe and i don't know bob weiss from adam you have to believe that the intention was you need to understand how bad things really were. This is not going to be a park where you are just going to come and be laughing and smiling like we are going to, we have a responsibility um, and an obligation to address these things and make you understand. So truly a learning experience. Like if you go to a museum, you see everything that takes place during those time frames. I think Disney felt obligated and probably wanted to do that. And I think it I, I think it came out and maybe a, it 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 instantly caused a very, very outward negative backlash.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because on the on one of the last pages of the 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 plan, the publication that they circulated, it has special events and Clearly, they were very focused on education and getting this done right, because they were going to have a stage equipped to do battle reenactments. They were going to have facilities to televise political debates or public affairs programs. They wanted to host the American Teacher Awards there. And then they were also going to have an area that could serve as a symposium for journalists, writers, historians. And they thought there was even the potential in the future for like a newsroom because they they wanted to get it out there, how important the free press and media were to American history, to our country and our freedoms as a whole. So I I don't think that, you know, people like to use the term Mickey Mouse. I don't think they were trying to Mickey Mouse this park at all, but obviously that close to Washington DC there were a right. lot of people who had fears about that right
0: and Disney Disney very much tried to distance itself from um uh, Bob Weiss's comments but the it, the barn door was open I mean it, it had come out and he was you know speaking as a representative and and again that's a very difficult line to toe between talking about American history without trivializing certain things while also not make you mean you want to make it something that's you know interesting and enjoyable for people to come while being sensitive to you know look a lot of bad things happened in our history and we can't forget or ignore that and and how do you sort of address it in this environment as you start to talk it out you're like maybe this is not a good idea (laughs) like you instantly open yourself up for you know debate and and controversy and that really is I think, where some of the issues initially started, which was how are is this going to be portrayed? What is what are the stories that are going to be told? Who is going to be telling them? The other thing too, was local residents were like, "Whoa, you can't build here. Like this is, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is this is hollowed ground. I mean, there were, Battles fought here and now you want to bring in to usual, you know, a Mickey Mouse park. Um, is it or is it going to be a respectful museum type thing or is it going to be a Mickey Mouse entertainment venue? Understandable concern from the the people who were living there, even though that the state of Virginia was willing to give Disney, I think it was one hundred and fifty or so million dollars. To help with the infrastructure because they realize, obviously, the incredible influx of tourism, translated money, that it was going to bring into the state. Although residents are like, wait a minute, we're not spending our tax dollars to pay for a Disney theme park. So, like, there were instant sort of people at loggerheads, you know, right out of the gate.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that they there were some heavy hitters that hopped on board here of uh, of fighting this off. You have David McCullough, who's a well-known historian. If anyone's ever seen John Adams' HBO series, is based on David McCullough's book, John Adams. He wrote 1776. At that point in time, he was doing um, a show on PBS. Uh, the I think it's The American Experience. Back in the 90s, he was doing that. And, and then he's joined by... Nick Coates, Pulitzer Prize journalist, uh, White House counsel to LBJ Harry McPherson, you know, a PR consultant for Reagan, you know, they've got all these people combined together and they quickly realized we can't really come at them as far as what they're going to put in this park because of First Amendment rights. They're allowed, mm-hmm. you know, they accepted that you can, you know, put whatever you want in there, but they decided to really fight them on the location. Like you said, there was just too much fear regarding, you know, is there going to be damage done to the battlefield? How are you dealing with traffic in this area? And and is there going to be pull from people wanting to visit the actual historical areas like Mount Burton, Vernon, like the battlefield, like all of the, the different locations in Washington, D.C. itself?
0: Right. And, and you you can't really, I mean, there's no way to tell what the impact and what the reception was. Um, Would have been, you know, putting it there, putting it in in a different location. I mean, and and for a long time, it seemed like, you know, Michael Eisner was um, was still very much on board with the idea. Um, Even in in before the product project was officially shelved in in 94, um, there were some Disney PR materials came out and he talked about um, Disney's America. In in, um, in you know he talked about how it's going to celebrate the qualities which have been the source of strength and the beacon of hope for people to everywhere and um, the, the nation is a mix rich rich mixture of land family and beliefs which we apply with our own brand of spirit humor and imagination so he really wanted to celebrate the. The, the stories and the histories and the cultural diversities and the the progress and problems that we encountered you know again like I think you know I'm sort of thinking um the you know American the the story of the American adventure film trying to recap all of American history although it's it's relatively short compared to to other cultures um in in a land where um where guests could have a very Participatory um, role in it, but um, yeah, I mean, from from the very beginning of the official announcement, there were those problems, and it didn't take very long for Disney to officially shelve the project in in you know early fall 1994.
2: Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting even to think about this today. Of you know, no good, no good idea. Dies, no good idea goes away at Disney, but you, you look at not to get into a political discussion, but you look at how fraught even the hall of presidents was when it reopened the last time. It's hard to imagine that a park like this could be built in the current climate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anytime that there is um, there's something like this or there are going to be opposing views and opposing sides, but Disney, you know, they, they were not necessarily done with the idea Um, when a uh, when Knott's Berry Farm was selling part of its property in 1995 Imagineers there was a um, there's a replica of Independence Hall at the farm and they're like well wait a minute maybe this can be where we want to build Disney's America." And supposedly uh, Knott's Berry Farm you know uh, shelved that idea but they did take some of the aspects of it so the idea for Victory Field sort of became part of what Condor Flats was, which is now the, the Grizzly Peak Airfield. There was actually, at DCA, when it first opened, there was an area known as Bountiful Valley Farm that took some of the inspiration there. That's gone. It's where Carsland was. Uh, I think Grizzly River Run reminds me of what this Lewis and Clark uh, um, River Raft Expedition was supposed to be Um, and maybe to a certain degree paradise pier was meant to be that that state fair aspect of it with the ferris wheel and the the wooden roller coaster um, which is what that that state fair of the 30s and 40s coney island ish was supposed to be which was a 60 foot ferris wheel and a wooden roller coaster so they did take um, some of those aspects and idea the non-controversial ones and we're (laughs) able to um, to to bring them over but you know if you if you take the and I know that you can't but in this in this fantasy world that I'm talking about if you sort of take the uh, the political and controversial and, and some of the really difficult parts and conversations of it. It really would be fascinating to be able to walk through and take your kids to be able to walk through and see what different parts of America and American history looked and felt like during those times. That's what gets me excited about the idea for Disney's America, right? Seeing what a Native American village would have been like, seeing what, you know... What life was like in the 1800s and that um, that that colonial village, we get a, a sense of it in a very simple way in Liberty Square. It's another thing to have this big land with with you know boats and things like that, and like what Walt wanted for the the Liberty Street in Disneyland, getting the feel that there were residents there that were blacks i'm taking the the residents of batu and galaxy's edge and sort of taking that concept that they all have their own story to tell in this environment that we get to walk through and live in you want to teach your kids about american history like that's a a really neat way to let them learn and, and maybe even get them excited about something that they wouldn't have been excited about before
2: yeah, and it's just another instance of Disney doing edutainment. Great. I mean, we you know we talk about that with Liberty Square, like you say, but this would have been times twenty.
0: Yeah, and I and I still, like I said, I don't think that um, I don't think that that idea necessarily um, is dead. But one of the other ones that, and again, I I'm hoping that everybody hasn't heard of all these because I think that there was one that. A lot of people either have never heard of or maybe they think it's, you know, it's this um, urban legend. And when we talk about the SS Disney, I don't mean the first iteration of what the, the Disney cruise line was going to be.
2: Yeah, I think this is where that phrase, next level bonkers, like <laughs> that that defines this. This is like I looked at my kid and I said, hey, you get to design a theme park today. And because he's really into boats right
0: now, he said, let's build it on a boat. Yeah, <laughs> I love this idea. And I don't think it's as bonkers as it sounds based on the size and what some of these ships are building today. But if you haven't guessed, the SS Disney was literally going to be a theme park on and in and (laughs) sort of all around a giant ship. And again, Michael Eisner, it's the Eisner era. It was a wacky time in the 90s, right? The military was really sort of downsizing post-Cold War and they're getting rid of some of their own, you know, aircraft carriers and some of the ships and it's hard to sell those on eBay. It, the PayPal fees are just through the roof. And as legend has it, at some charity dinner, a Navy admiral and a Disney executive are talking. There's probably a couple of cocktails flowing around and somebody says something about this floating theme park. What if you going to take a theme park and just throw it over the ships and somebody goes wait a minute, that's not the worst idea I ever heard of in the world and all of a sudden the idea for the SS Disney is born they think we're making this up but I, I swear this yeah, is not a I joke yeah, I saw
2: this and the first thing I thought when I when I heard the SS Disney I was like, what is the SS Disney? so I looked it up and I'm like, no no, this is like that thing you see on April Fool's Day where they, <laughs> right. they say that they're building a park in Canada and, and I think of, I, it I thought probably it did joke. start like, as a joke you have to be pranking me right. it, but then I found the model
0: it, but it probably did start as a joke. You know, it probably started at like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if you could put, you know, these aircraft carriers are so big, you could probably put a theme park on on top. And all of a sudden, the guy's like, wait, I want to make a name for myself in Imagineering. I think this is how I'm going to do it.
2: Well, and he finds another Imagineer, Mark Hickson, who actually has shipbuilding experience. And he says, no, no, wait, you don't want an aircraft carrier. You want an oil tanker. <laughs> let's go even bigger (laughs) and yeah i mean the the top of this thing was going to have attractions on the top you have all this volume interior volume on an on an an oil tanker where they were going to have they were going to redo things like space mountain and dumbo and the teacups and the orbitron and it's a small world the facade was going to cover the pilot house to kind of disguise it i mean you you would enter on this glass covered hub And it was going to have Tomorrowland, Adventureland, and Fantasyland that were going to, you know, spoke off of that entrance section. And, you know, we're talking restaurants. and, And it would pull up to locations around the world where Disney was not able to build a permanent theme park. And it would dock, and they would have this portable dock, and people would be allowed to get on for eight hours at a time. And they thought that it could probably hold around 10,000 guests at a time. And they'd be able to do two different periods during the day. And because it was going to have about half the amount of rides of a normal theme park. And so they thought people could probably get done in eight hours. So they, you know, they go on, have their fun. Those people leave for the day. Cast members stay in a secondary ship. And half the cast members would travel with the boat when it moved to a new port and half of them, they would hire in that port so that there would be people who knew the language and, and it would move every few months so that they would have this exposure in countries where there were no Disney parks.
0: It literally sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, right? Like, and if you look at the model and. And I'll try and see if I can get some um, some some photos to put in the show notes. There is a white scale model that is built to incredible detail and it almost does look like your kid took his G.I. Joe aircraft carrier and then took his Legos and his little, you know, um, they used to sell for for the monorail system. They used to sell like these little mini versions of attractions, and just starts putting them on top of a ship because that's exactly what it kind of looks like. But it really isn't that far away from ships now that have go kart attractions and and other rides and stuff up on top of the deck. And and when you said you know eighteen attractions, which is you know about maybe half of of what Magic, that's a lot. And ten thousand guests again you need to put that in sort of context and, and relation to what you know what some of the current mega ships have which is much less than half that um i mean it's theoretically it was a doable thing and it was an idea that both eisner and wells you know roy and disney eisner and wells were excited about and, and thought that it was something that could happen you know by the turn of the century. They thought that you know by 2000, this was something that they could absolutely make happen. And you can see by the the detail in the um, uh, in the model that you know from a, a an engineering and a size point of view, it's something that absolutely could happen.
2: Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things on the model when you look at the captions with some of the pictures is that there was supposed to be an Aladdin dark ride. Which for years, my sister and I, you (laughs) know, we grew up in the Disney Renaissance. We're like, why, why do we only get the magic carpets of Aladdin? Why is this not something better? So that was that piqued my interest.
0: But yeah, there was obviously, you know, a ton of different themed retail shops for Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. There was a Disney store, obviously, (laughs) right? Um, I don't even need to say that out loud. A lot of um, themed restaurants um, as well uh, and and shows and whatnot. So you would have that Disney theme park experience literally at sea in a very different way than what we have currently with, disney cruise line i mean this was going to be truly a a theme park at sea and if you look at the models and see the size and the scope and the scale of what they were looking to build um it almost looks as though it it should be something that would just be docked somewhere and not actually float
2: yeah and they i mean we're not talking short distances either that they were planning on taking this they they were looking at locations in the western pacific and australia i mean i I don't know how long that would have taken to travel that far it seems like that would have left them with a lot of downtime versus how much time that they would have been able to charge people who are coming in yeah but but just
0: think if you're going to take a trip around the world this is the ship that you want to do it on i mean it would have been you know ninety thousand dollars per
2: person well they did (laughs) they did say that 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 no one was going to be allowed to actually be on it when it was moving from port to port it was just going to be when it docked you got on you got to experience it and then at the end of the night or the end of your eight hour period you got off and that even the permanent cast members wouldn't have ridden on the actual oil tanker they would have had their own ship that they were transported on
0: but imagine what it would be like if you could build that and then actually convert some of the lower decks to you know habitable um, quarters for you know guests and and cast um, and and be able to to do so uh, it sounds ridiculous and awesome all at the same time Um, why does it not happen other than the fact that it's ridiculous and awesome
2: really the only (laughs) reason I could find is this happened around the same time that Frank Wells died and he was you know like you said, it was the Walt and Roy, it was Eisner and Wells and Eisner still really liked the idea, but without Wells there to help push it forward, it, it just didn't happen. And they, the and corporate kind of said, we think really, if you want to do something on a boat, an actual cruise ship yeah. is going to be a better way to go.
0: And I hate to keep on, you know, pointing the finger at poor Euro Disneyland, but, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. look, it's. The expectations were very, very high for it. It was, I said it before, it was hemorrhaging a million dollars a day. Um, that is not something that that um, a, a company cannot I- ignore. Um, and with with that park not doing well, attendance, not even being close to what they expected, um, lots of other, you know, things sort of gnawing away at the idea it didn't really get much farther than that oh so very beautiful model and i have no idea where it is or whose possession it is in but if you do a search you can find uh photos of it um online and look it, it does end up um you know it does end up becoming the the disney cruise line which i am obviously a a massive fan of uh, and I think just I very quickly want to touch on one. I know we talked about the uh, the plans for domestic parks. There is one that was rumored and still continues to come up. I have a, a bunch of friends that I have met through the show who live down under, who every so often will say, Mangello, now's the time to buy property because Disney is coming to the Gold Coast of Australia They may not be right now, but for a little while, that was something that was absolutely being considered once again during the Eisner era back in the 1990s and this secret plan for a Disney resort that went relatively far in the planning.
2: I'm going to be honest. You surprised me with this one.
0: (laughs) See, oh, that's awesome. So from what I understand, there were plans for a disney resort um in or around sydney australia and supposedly there were meetings between um eisner and uh property developers um that had gone on back and forth and then at one point supposedly eisner was like you know what if we're gonna go anywhere the place that i want to go to is china as opposed to um, um, uh, Australia, although there were talks about similar types of things with the elements of Disney theme parks and themed hotels, that marina, that ferry wharf, uh, light rail station, uh, retail space, possibly an area for, you know, ships to come in and dock and, and some ideas that uh, uh, supposedly were originally planned for their and then eventually make their way to places like Shanghai and Hong Kong. This was supposedly codenamed Project Lester, and it was described as an integrated Disney destination to live, work, play, and learn. This may have very well been one of those things of trying to get people to invest in Australian uh, real estate, but um, supposedly there were conversations back and forth with Disney and you know it seemed as though it was going to be a um a done deal in the mid the early to mid 90s but uh, eventually Disney looked elsewhere this again seems to come up in conversation and rumors all the time um i don't know if if australia is accessible enough to enough people to make that be the next place I think Disney would go. Um, So the question I have for you, Kendall, and you, our friend, the listener, is do you think there's a chance, and opportunity for another domestic Disney theme park?
2: (laughs) I want to say yes, because clearly... we're we're reaching max capacity at Disney World. I mean, it's why they're altering ticket prices. Everyone says, you know, why does it keep getting more expensive? I mean, there's only so much supply. Clearly people are wanting to vacation and vacation at new locations that Disney produces. And so I think from a business standpoint, it seems like if they were able to come up with a third location that people would travel there. But, is, but when it comes down to selecting where, that just seems like the biggest barrier. Because are, are you going to move to another area where there's, you know, all year round great weather? How, how many options are there for that? And you've kind of got it covered on both coasts. So are you going to try to do something that's all indoors? And are you able to create the same environment when it's all contained Inside of a small area, and obviously there's other additional expenses that come along with it, like what we talked about with the St. Louis Riverfront. You know, when you're having to contain it all in a building, that requires massive expense of a massive building. But uh, and, you know, and, I, I wish it would happen. Well,
0: but, but but you're right. Where becomes part of the issue, right? And everybody obviously wants it in their backyard. And one of the things we actually didn't talk about was the. I don't wanna even I can't call it a planned park, but there was always a bit of a desire to have a Disney theme park in or around New York City. Um, you know, Walt had talked about wanting to have a park on the East Coast somewhere, and with so many guests visiting New York, passing through New York, that seemed like the perfect hub. Look, even today, and I'm ballparking numbers obviously. A vast majority of visitors to Walt Disney World come from the Northeast, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. So it makes perfect sense to build something. You know, you build where the people are, give them something to go to. There were um, there were rumors for a long, long time of Disney planning to build and having financing from NBC uh, of, of companies it was one of the ones I remembered hearing from trying to figure out, you know, how they could do it. Obviously, it would only be, uh, it would be a literally a fair weather park, right? It, it could not be open in the winter due to the inclement weather. Um, and supposedly Buzz Price, again, looked at building, uh, at one point, building what was going to be the next Disneyland in New York. We talked about it earlier versus Florida. And had, he had done a report, you know, obviously showing why Florida was a uh, a much better choice and the winters and whatnot were going to significantly impact the, the revenue plus like Florida, Walt wanting not to build by the beach. Walt didn't want to build in New York because you've got other d- distractors. You've got, Museums and Broadway and other things to do, other than just going to a, a a Disney park. So, you know, we hear about Disneyland East and Disney New York and New York. Just, Dis- I mean, there was a new a New Jersey um, um, locations that were talked about it too. But you're right, trying to find that ideal location that satisfies all of the requirements are difficult. You have that same issue going. To some place like Chicago, um, you have other issues. If you go to a place like Dallas, in terms of being right in the middle, you know, going to Marshalline, Missouri, makes no sense because it's difficult to access. There's it's so you know where is there a chance for another domestic park? I, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to hear um, what listeners would say in terms of the the. The actual feasibility of it happening, but the question I have for you: of all the things that we talked about today, in terms of these true unrealized concepts, from the SS Disney to Westcott to Port Disney to um, God, there's so many <laughs> I hardly remember to um, uh, Saint Louis to which of those that we covered today, um, including text position and, you know, Mineral King, which of those different concepts would you like to have seen be built most?
2: I I have to go with Westcott. I mean, I agree with Marty Sklar that you don't you don't want a sequel. But to me, It just seems fundamentally different from Epcot, even though it was inspired by it and you can obviously see similarities. There's also drastic differences and it just, I mean, it might be because it was one of the ones that was more fleshed out. So there's more that you can grab a hold of and say, Oh, I would have loved that. I would have loved that. But I love, I love Epcot and I love the things that they discuss in, in those articles on Westcott. I mean, the, the, the river of time cruise, the, the different, you know, world wonders and, you know, all down, even down to the, the waterfall coming out of the bottom of the gold sphere. Like it just sounds like it would have been beautiful.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, look, there, there were, you know, there were smaller ideas and smaller expansions that we, we didn't even touch on. Um, lest we forget Hyperion wharf. Uh, when Hyperion Wharf was going to come to (laughs) Walt Disney World a few years ago and some of the other plans for expansions of Disneyland. But in terms of unique properties, unique locations that were going to be built, I want to know from you, our friend, the listener, which one of these would you have most liked to see built and why? The best way to let us know is by being part of the community and conversation by going to www.radio.com community. That will take you to our Facebook group. You can also call the voicemail, be heard on the air, and really articulate, share in your most passionate way which one you'd like to have seen and visited and why, 407-900-9391. Kendall, uh, do you want to share anything about where people can find you online, or maybe just in the Box People group?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm in the I'm in the Box People group. Um, if you want to follow my sparse and random <laughs> Twitter musings, you you can do that. <laughs> at, way, to,
0: um, way to sell it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, at KL underscore Foreman F O R E M A N. But I would say the best place if you want to know anything about me and my trips to Disney is just a look for me on the ww radio blog um i was editor for six years just recently hard choice gave that up and but i'm still going to continue writing and there's plenty of evergreen content back there if you look me up and yeah
0: awesome this this was a lot of fun um i I appreciate you you suggesting um such a great topic i mean there's so much to think about and dream about and wonder what might have been. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you being uh, here with us today. And I cannot wait to see you on board the SS Disney.
2: <laughs> you too. We'll, we'll uh, take a trip on, on the Aladdin dark ride.
0: <laughs> so, bizarre. <laughs> so bizarre. Although it was supposed to have a Flynn's arcade on it. So oh, I did alone, not see that. That alone. Your, your would dream been, would have come true. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> where does one park an aircraft carrier? Uh, yeah. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history, Or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes in what you see or hear, and yes, maybe even eat. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So I said last week that before I ever did my very first live dining review, one of the first restaurants I highlighted in Walt Disney World wasn't necessarily because of its food, although I do love it, But the details, I love those two, the stories, the histories, and hidden treasures in my very first DSI Disney Scene Investigation segment. And your question last week simply was to tell me, what show and restaurant was the subject of my very first DSI? Thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, not only who got this correct, but shared memories of when you started listening, when you went back to listen how different this show was versus some newer shows and lots more. I really, really appreciate you sharing your stories as well as your answer, which was, of course, show number three, and that was Pecos Bill. I did my first DSI, we talked about the story and the details. And if you listen to the entire episode, we also talked about some new Disney Cruise Line ships that were just being announced as well as some new disney rumors and it's sometimes fun and interesting to go back and hear what was rumor back in 2007 versus what is current in 2019 anyway i took all of the correct entries randomly selected one again last week you were playing for all my digital products which is my 102 ways to save money for and at walt disney world book all 7 of my virtual audio walking tours of said secrets and stories and history of the Magic Kingdom you can find those in iTunes the book and Amazon I'm also going to send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker not available anywhere else as well as a pop socket for your phone and a snazzy WW Radio t-shirt so last week's winner randomly selected is Bella Alvarado so Be- Bella thank you for using the form thank you for sending the correct entry and a wonderful story by the way you are our winner I have your address I will get your prize package out to right away If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So this week here in America, we will be celebrating July 4th. Well, I mean, we celebrate July 4th everywhere on the planet. But this week, we'll be celebrating our American independence. So I thought we would go with some trivia about our great nation in the parks. Now, I have to tell you that Magic Kingdom is my favorite of the parks, and really over the last few years, probably when I first started working on my Liberty Square audio tour, I really came to know and understand and have a greater and deeper appreciation of this land. And really it has become, although there's not a lot of attractions in there other than the mansion and Hall of Presidents, I I love it because of just how rich it is and it's also one that I have personal memories of as a kid walking and wandering through either on my way to the Haunted Mansion or heading the other way towards Frontierland and back in the 70s there was actually a daily ceremony that was held in Liberty Square and it involved a fife and drum corps and there were cast members and they were all in this wonderful colonial era revolutionary style costuming And during this ceremony, and sort of mini-parade as it were, cast members would choose a boy and the girl from the crowd to be part of this celebration. They would get this little commemorative scroll. It was very, very cool. I never got selected, which still haunts me to this day, but I want to know, I'm over it, it's okay. I want to know what was the name of this daily Fife and Drum Corps celebration in Liberty Square that ran in the late throughout the 70s into the early 80s. You have until Sunday, July 2nd to go to www.radio.com click on this week's podcast use the form there. Again, you'll play for all the digital products, the books, the seven audio tours, the vinyl sticker and a pop socket and I'll give you a choice. You can either have a WW Radio shirt or you can have a mystery prize from the mystery prize closet so good luck God bless America and have fun that's going to do it for this week's show thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week please don't forget that I want you to be part of the community and conversation by going to www.radio.com slash community and joining our Box People group there. I also want to give huge thanks, speaking of community, to the new and longtime members of our WW Radio Nation family. I appreciate your love and support and friendship and help. I want to thank Kelly Clevenger, Dana Kramer, Jeff Matheson, and Chris Reynolds. They are just a few of the new members who have joined our WW Radio Nation family and will get exclusive rewards like monthly scavenger hunts. We have a private Facebook group. Custom magic band covers, logo gear, t shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World. We also have exclusive live video group calls, early access and discounts to special events and more. To find out how you can help support the show, visit www.radio.com. support. Again, it is completely optional, greatly appreciated. And don't forget that not only is it a great way for you to help show your support for the show, but a portion of of your contribution does go to our Dream Team project to directly benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Please also don't forget to join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. That's my live, weekly video show on Facebook where you can not only be part of the show, but call in with your questions and comments. Again, that's every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. The best way to make sure you get notified is to, one, subscribe to our free email newsletter at www.radio.com also by turning on notifications on Facebook. If you have a question you want me to answer on the air, you can email me, Lou, at WWRadio.com or be heard on the air yourself by calling the voicemail at 407-900-9391 with a question, a comment, or just a hello from the parks. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on the Twitter, Instagram, where I am sharing a lot more in terms of stories and unique content there. And of course, you know, as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. Stay tuned for our next Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World. I think this July we're going to do our annual day at the Walt Disney World Water Park, something a little bit different, sort of spend the afternoon and early evening together. Stay tuned for details. That will happen in mid to late July. I'm going to lock in a date and I'll announce it on the show probably next week, but most likely earlier on the WW Radio Group in Facebook again it's Facebook. It's www.radio.com slash community and if you visit the events page at www.radio.com slash events you can find out about other events not just in Walt Disney World but our adventures by Disney to Japan our group cruise next February out of New Orleans and lots of other events coming up as well I also invite you to please visit loumangelo.com there I can help you turn what you love into what you do by either working with you one-on-one i still have availability for my weekly mastermind group and my momentum weekend workshop in walt disney world the september 28th and 29th it is a weekend of inspiration education and community where you'll not only learn but get to execute on what you learn right in the room as well as meet and work with others right away to help you take your idea your brand your business to the next level whether you're a blogger, a podcaster, a content creator, or own a brick and mortar store, we will be able to help you. This is the last week I will be accepting speaker submissions and I'll also be announcing our first round of speakers, including our keynote speaker in the past. We've had Lee Cockerell, Dan Cockerell, Duncan Wardle, Ashley Eckstein from Star Wars and her universe, as well as others who literally have walked the walk and will be in the room to help you turn what you love into what you do. Again, to find out more, take advantage of the early bird pricing, visit loumangelo.com, click on the Momentum tab. Thanks, as always, to Becky Mankin and then the entire team over at MouseFan Travel. It's who I recommend because it's who I love and it's who I personally use. And more importantly, it's who I trust for you and your Disney vacation, whether you're going to World, Land, Cruise, Adventures by Disney, or anywhere on the planet. Becky and her team of agents give you the best possible prices, all available discounts with an incredible level of personal service, all which costs you absolutely nothing. To find out more, get a free no-obligation quote, visit mousefantravel.com and don't forget to visit celebrationspress.com to order back issues of Celebrations Magazine and as always my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not all I ask is that if you like the show, and I really hope that you do please help spread the word, let your friends know about it by tweeting out that you're listening, sharing a link to this or your favorite episode on Facebook Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest and if you can, take It's like 15, 30 seconds tops to rate and review the show over on iTunes. It is incredibly, incredibly helpful and so very much appreciated. Thanks to you, we have more than 2,000 five-star reviews and really need to keep those coming. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Park Hopper Dean from Australia, which is amazing to me that somebody on the other side of the planet listens to the show. He says it's a touch of magic from 10,000 miles away. Living in Australia, Disney magic is harder to come by until I started listening to Lou. His knowledge and passion, especially for the food, for Disney, is something that I didn't know I was missing until I found him. He makes my daily car ride so much easier, and I'm currently making my way back through the past episodes as I wait for weekly new ones. It's safe to say that my love for Disney has grown tenfold, and it's all thanks to Lou. I may not be able to give Lou the handshake and the hug just yet, but I hope this review is enough. Thanks for now, Park Hopper Dean. I promise we'll make that happen one day, Hophead. From the U.S., says it lives up to its rating. It's hard to believe exceptional ratings on a podcast, but WW Radio lives up to it. It's as informative as it is entertaining. It may be it may be aimed at Disney nerds and fans, but it's accessible to members of the broader audience planning a first visit to Walt Disney World. Lou Mangello, a Disney character himself, hmm, easily flows from travel tips. I think it's a compliment. Restaurant reviews, park history, and movie trivia. This is a podcast for every level of Disney interest. Just dive in. And Jesse Allard says, my dad's been listening to the podcast for years. And whenever I was in the car, I would listen as well. I'm now listening to the podcast when I am driving. And I love every second of that. I I love hearing that because one, I love the fact that it sounds like you literally sort of grown up listening, but that parents know that the show is one that is safe, that they can listen to with their kids. So Dean, uh, Oh, top hop head is Tom S and Jesse. Thank you so very much. Again, just search for WW Radio and iTunes or go to WW slash iTunes for a link and instructions on how to leave the review. Again, thank you so, so very much. I cannot tell you how much I truly love you. Forgetting not even maybe being friends, whether we've met yet or not. I love you whether we've met yet or not because you are giving me the gift of being able to do what I do every day And share it with you and hopefully have just even a small bit of a positive impact on your life. And if there's any way that I can do something more, whether it's at Momentum or with the show, please, please let me know. For all that you give to me, just by virtue of your time and attention, I sincerely want to be able to give back any way that I can. In the meantime, I hope that this truly is your best week ever and that every day is positive and fun and filled with joy and happiness. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. It's Brad and Amy Peterson from Boyceville, Wisconsin, Colin
1: from Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland. We've just loved Galaxy's Edge, and I've only cried a few times. We're about to enter Ogre's Cantina for the third time so we can finish trying all the beverages in honor of Becky. We've had fun in L.A. traveling to important Disney sites and taking a tour of the Walt Disney Studios. On our drive, we listened to your overlooked experiences for adults at WDW, and I wanted to add golf at one of the Disney golf courses to the list. The Sunrise 9 and Sunset 9 packages are really affordable and include food and beverage before and after the round. That's a great way to take a break from the crowds. We hope to say hi to you and for a handshake and a hug at D23 in August. Thank you for your great shows and the awesome community of the Box Nation. Have a wonderful day. Hi, Lou. It's Elizabeth from Massachusetts. I just finished it listening to your most recent episode, 557, about the most overlooked adult experiences, and I am so, so glad you did this topic. It's something that I spend a lot of time convincing family and friends to travel down to Disney World with me and explaining to them all of the great things that are available for adults that go beyond, like you said, just the ride and the characters and the cutesy stuff. so what's so funny, too, is I also was to into Episode 206 earlier today um, where you actually did the review of the Africa Trek. So I know that you sort of started out with that in the episode, and I agree. I think all of those backstage experiences are things that are totally overlooked and um, can really make the – or have adults learn more, um, rather than just walking through the park they can kind of experience and understand uh, just how intricate and detailed these parks um, are. I also am so glad you brought up for uh, My mom and I dream about that breath day after day after day. We love it so much, and now I'm excited to go back, um, and I have an excuse because I've never been there actually for the late night lounge. Um, I also think that you guys talked about Disney Springs um, and I think that what they've done and how they've uh, transformed the Springs from Downtown Disney, at first I remember being kind of like a teenager and thinking, oh, I hate what they're doing to this. I don't like the name. And, I mean, I still call it Downtown Disney all the time. But there was the sense of, like, not not that it wasn't unclassy, but I would say now Disney Springs is a classy place where you can go and have fun with friends, family, um, and as an adult, you don't feel like you're in Disney World, and I think that's super important. Um, one thing that was not mentioned, is it does involve a few adult beverages. Friends and I that go pretty frequently absolutely love to the baseline tacos in Hollywood Studios. I think it's totally overlooked. They have really good uh, local and a lot of California uh, brewed beers as well as some wines. And the um, charcuterie boards there are absolutely unreal. And you're – I'm coming from someone who travels around the world in search of perfect meat and cheese board. I've been you know, to France and uh, Amsterdam and Copenhagen and, um, and Spain. And I will tell you, I really, 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 really love that. Uh, charcuterie board, they do there. Um, And then I know that for adults, like you had said, there's so many experiences that don't involve um, alcohol, but I think what's important, and my friends and I will drink around the world almost every time we go, uh, but we do so in a way that's not crazy. Like, we drinks, not only for the purposes of, you know, it's 11 drinks, but for the monetary reason, too, because it ends up acting up. hi, Lou, it's Elizabeth again from Mouse. and she said, I guess my message was too long, which I'll go fast now because um, I got cut out on the last one. But um, I was just talking about how even though drinking around the world kind of has this connotation, it can be an activity that is um, a ton of fun to do with friends. And it's my friends and I will still complete the KitKat thing purely because we actually enjoy it. It makes us feel like a kid again. Um, we also split the drinks, like I said, mostly for monetary reasons too because it ends up being so expensive. Um, but I agree with you that I think that there is – a place for adults in Walt Disney World. There always will be. Um, And what Disney is continuing to do with the parks and the downtown, oh, my gosh, there, I said it again. In the Disney Springs area, it has been amazing. So, yeah, I think that they're calculated in the way that they release alcohol into the parks. And I um, think that... Disney is doing a great job at making Disney World an experience for folks to have fun and enjoy, too. So, this is episode. I absolutely loved it. And I'm going to send my time to to come down to the world for Christmas with me this year. Okay. I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for all the work you do. Totally appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Bye.